This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Welcome to Tech Hype, a series that debunks misunderstandings around emerging technologies, provides nuanced insight into the real benefits and risks, and cuts through the hype to identify effective technical and policy strategies. I'm your host, Brandy Nonaki. Each episode in the series focuses on the hype around emerging technologies. In this episode, we're debunking disinformation. While platforms can offer an opportunity for connection and meaning across differences, disinformation, deep fakes, and harmful memes simultaneously undermine these benefits. Social media platforms are plagued by this harmful content that can undermine elections, worsen public health disparities, and polarize communities. I'm joined today by Dr. Joan Donovan, a leading public scholar and disinformation researcher specializing in media manipulation, political movements, critical internet studies, and online extremism. She is the research director of the Harvard Kennedy School's Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy and Director of the Technology and Social Change Project. Joan, thank you so much for joining me today for this episode of Tech Type. In each episode, I'd like to start with a definition. So could you define for us disinformation in media manipulation? Sure. Uh, so let me start by defining a word you didn't ask for, which is misinformation. And misinformation is information that is untrue, but it's being shared unknowingly. Um, when we're defining terms, though, like disinformation, it's good to have uh, a broader definition because disinformation is information that is untrue, but is being shared knowingly and usually for political gain. And so a lot of times it's very difficult to tell when something is disinformation unless we know its origin source and the intention of the actor. And that's where media manipulation comes in, because media manipulation is more than a noun. It's more like a tactic. And so it is the purposeful uh, use of media, be it, you know, if you're editing pictures or text or uh, video uh, with the intention of tricking someone into uh, believing a certain outcome. And so media manipulation is the thing that we actually study in our pursuit of naming something as misinformation or, or disinformation. OK, so it's more about thinking through the intent. Yeah. OK, so in each episode, we also try to debunk misunderstandings. So I'd love to explore with you. What do you think are the three most common misunderstandings around disinformation and media manipulation? Um, so there's so many misunderstandings, I think. The number one thing people misunderstand is that this is about censorship and this is about someone is wrong on the Internet and let's go get them and, you know, cancel them or upend their lives. This is a problem. Primarily, disinformation is a problem of elites trying to trick mm -hmm. uh, everyday people into believing lies at scale. And so it's not really about studying everyday people, but of studying up, studying power. I'd say the mm -hmm. second uh, biggest 
issue uh, in this field is that, uh, you know, there are people who often use media manipulation tactics or disinformation in the pursuit of profit. And so when you call out those people as media manipulators or disinformers, um, they'll try to harass you uh, or they'll try to turn the tables and say you're a hall monitor. And so journalists in particular, um, when they uncover that there's been some kind of scheme and some kind of lying happening, uh, usually what is really disingenuous, disingenuine is that the, the tides or the scales will be flipped. Mm-hmm. or the table will turn on the journalists themselves. I think the third most um, difficult thing uh, about this field is is actually a problem of the methodology itself, where for a while it was very convenient to suggest that there were bots everywhere. Right. And we still, as a field, are very unsettled on how do you study automated social media accounts, what is a bot versus what is, uh, you know, a thousand accounts controlled by a human? Exactly. There's so much misunderstanding around what is a bot? What is it? What is it not? Are yeah. there malicious bots? Are there actually helpful bots? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'd like to bring up maybe one other misunderstanding, and maybe this is a misunderstanding that I actually hold. Are we in a new era? Is it new what we're facing now? Or is this just a new manifestation of you know, human beings throughout time using propaganda to manipulate others? It's That's a good question, because as a historian of technology, we have seen similar incidents in the past, um, some that were purely entertainment, like uh, the War of the Worlds broadcast. Right. People were listening on their radio and thought the world was ending. The alien invasion. Yeah, but it happening. was just, you know, fiction. Um, and then there have been other times where the media has been hoaxed um, for political ends, like weapons of mass destruction, um, for instance, uh, during the Bush administration. And so we've had that happen. It's really hard, though, to hoax a media organization writ large. Um, that hoaxing has become what people in the tech field might like to call democratized. Wow. Yes, I've heard that term. (laughs) The the democratization of technology. Exactly. But it's it's really a feature of the products. So social media scales information. That's its job. Right. And so misinformation and disinformation is then a feature, not a bug of the technology, because it scales just as any other information would scale. Now, When you study this, what you actually learn is that psychologically, people are very drawn to scandal, they're drawn to outrage, they're drawn to uh, ideas that some of them uh, aggrandize their importance in the world and make them feel a sense of purposefulness. The social platforms in particular, it took them a very, very long time to understand what they built. Yeah, And for a while, researchers in this field, let's call it Internet studies, um, would say, hey, you know, social media is great for social movements, but we see these troubling turns. We see these imposter accounts. We see these, you know, hate movements that are starting to get organized. And every time along the way, things were being dismissed. They were being talked about as a 
as an outsider use case or these are in the gray zone. And, yeah. and uh, unfortunately, inattention to the growing harms caused by social media have now turned into essentially a whole of society problem yeah. where journalists have to deal with it now, public health officials, FBI got to get involved in some cases, politicians. And so there's really no person that misinformation, especially disinformation campaigns, hasn't touched yeah. um, through the malicious use of social media platforms. Uh while at the same time, these companies have made incredible profits, mm-hmm. some knowing that their products are harming society. And they've always talked that point away as if it was, as if, you know, one bad actor or two bad actors. Yeah. And kind so- of um, like, un- <laughs> you know, pushing down the problem, making it not as big, yeah. perceived as big as it actually is. Mm-hmm. I'd like to get into some of the benefits and risks of um, when we have platforms or other actors, you mentioned journalists, where they uncover disinformation or they uncover media manipulation. You know, obviously I can see some benefits, but I imagine there are some risks in some ways that that might backfire. Can you talk a little bit about those benefits and risks? Yeah. So for journalists, uh, for years, I've been talking to journalists about when they should cover. And we've come down with this rubric of you want to cover media manipulation or disinformation campaigns when it's affecting our politics, when it's targeting vulnerable groups, or it's having consequences for our public health. These are important stories that your entire audience needs to know. Um, But the dangers are covering things that are uh, really juicy and scandalous, but perhaps don't serve your audience. Um, any story that begins with a lot of people are saying <laughs> <laughs> might be uh, heard that, that yes. it's a it's a problem. Um, and you know, and I think also one of the big risks is that, especially with the way the platforms algorithms are designed right now. Anything that they call fresh and relevant Mm -hmm. is going to show up quicker in search. Things that are trending uh, might not be a great thing to report on because those trends can be manipulated and engineered. Yeah, and and not just by the platforms, but I imagine manipulated by individuals who want certain content to go viral. Yes. And this began years ago with social movements who learned that If you coordinate, you can make something trend. And then that would get attention and trade up the chain into national news. And so it wasn't uncommon for movements to have tweet storms or other uh, ways of coordinating, you know, the time and the date of using a certain hashtag so that, you know, it got maximum juice and uh, hopefully trended. Because what's trending isn't what's popular. What's popular is always going to be a celebrity name, and it's going to be pretty, you know, it would be all Taylor Swift these days. Yeah, exactly. If, if, if yeah, that's, the big tour that's yeah, happening, of exactly. course, yeah. It's been very fun to watch on TikTok, I'll tell you that much. But I bring that up to say I think there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding about what trends look like right. and how you can manipulate and engineer trends. And generally on Twitter, 
you know, anywhere from 1,000 to 3,000 uses of a hashtag can get it to trend because it will be a spike in volume and it would be a very quick spike in volume. And so the algorithms are trained to ignore the very popular line of contents and seek out those spikes. And so you can engineer those spikes. And a lot of uh, corporations exist now to do social media, reputation management, search engine optimization. Exactly. And so built into the business of uh, social media platforms for a while, this was considered dark money in a Mm -hmm. sense that, you know, you can pay to get something to trend. Slowly over time, the companies integrated that into their advertising. And so now you can pay for engagement through Twitter or through a Facebook. And that kind of pay for play uh, changes what might be organic, quote unquote, organic uh, lines in what people are interested in into these um, hoaxes or manipulation yeah. campaigns. And you said something that I think is a really important point. You said that they try to get stuff to trend and then it gets picked up by larger media outlets. Mm-hmm. I think we often think about the social media and platforms as sort of operating in a vacuum outside of the larger media ecosystem, but they're not. The way that those campaigns, right, are the most effective is when they can use the platform to leverage it to get them to a wider audience. Yeah. And this is common, and it came from early blogging. Mm. Uh, so before social media, there's a great book by Ryan Holiday called Trust Me, I'm Lying, about how he became a media manipulator. And what he would do is put plant stories on blogs that he knew newspapers were looking at for fresh ideas. And so you could scale by planting a story on a blog Mm -hmm. and then it'll show up in the LA Times the next day because journalists are hungry for storylines and and it's easy copy. Uh, So this tactic predates social media, but on social media it became supercharged because ostensibly an editor at a news organization, their job is to find out what people want to know about. And so Twitter trends became the perfect recipe for figuring that out. I want to talk a little bit about interventions and what we can actually do. So what do you think might be the most effective technical or policy interventions that we can implement now to mitigate harmful media manipulation, disinformation, and address this rise of misinformation? So controversially, I would say that one of the most effective strategies to tamping down media manipulation that has to do with uh, for-profit enterprises that use hoaxing, scams, grifts, and whatnot would be to uh, flex the laws that we already have that say, you know, there should be truth in advertising. If you're advertising a product, it better be able to do the things that you say it does. Yeah, but we also need the tech companies to make it more difficult to pull off these kinds of scams and to look for them. One of the big backlashes we've been experiencing as a field is that the tech companies are now laying off and rolling off of uh, looking at their own platforms and doing the research on the harms caused by their technologies. Uh, The second thing I would say, and 
This is just my own wishful thinking is that we deplatform all politicians. You get your elected politician, you got to go post things somewhere on a, you know, on a place where it can then be syndicated or whatnot. But uh, politicians get us into so much trouble because of the way they use the Internet. And I do sometimes get tech nostalgic for a time back when it was only weirdos on the Internet and things weren't as serious because a lot of times what you're seeing is media manipulation, disinformation campaigns that solely want recognition from incumbent politicians. They just want to be retweeted or noticed. And so I would say at least 60% of the stuff that we deal with uh, looking at disinformation is about grabbing attention of politicians. So I say deplatforming, but what I really mean is that we need politicians to be accountable for what it is that they're saying. We need their staffers to understand that there are real liabilities in defaming or harassing, doxing, trolling, or commanding, inciting these people to act out. Exactly. And so I think that that's what I really mean. But I do get a little wishful for a a time before when nobody cared about social media and you could trade all kinds of music and be a weirdo. Cat memes and other things, you know, it used to be so much more fun. Um, But I think the most important thing we could do is use the infrastructure in the service of the public interest. And so timelines and news feeds, I believe, need to incorporate what I call talk, timely, accurate local knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I say knowledge because that is something that is uh, produced through a method. It's been fact-checked. It's been thought about. And we need a better way to make sure that people are getting information they need to make decisions about their selves, their livelihoods, their health, their community. And one of the grand visions, the original vision of the internet was that it would be so big and so uh, unbounded that every person could participate and have equal chance of being discovered. And it was a hobbyist utopia. Now that we're getting our journalism and our education and our uh, in our politics through these mediums, it's particularly social media, we need timelines and news feeds to serve the public interest. And I say this because you're most susceptible to misinformation when you know what you don't know and you start searching for it. Right, exactly. And that's exactly where media manipulators and disinformers bet what kind of keywords you're going to use, just like advertisers do, and how, you know, you're going to find it or it's going to find you. And that has a lot to do with the infrastructure of the Internet and how things are built with content tags. And so if you search for one thing, a bunch of other things come up in recommendation. But what we've learned about media manipulators and disinformers is what they know is that you want the news every day and they're going to give you the news with their spin and their politics. And they're going to tag it to things that might not be that political even, but because you're searching for it, they want to be caught up in your recommendations. And so for many years studying the far right, I was often not confused because I understood why, but Mm -hmm. nobody could see what the content tags were on YouTube videos 
And when you would search for things like Black Lives Matter or social justice, you would get all of this far right content and it would be right at the top. And that's because these kind of outrage videos were so popular. And so you had far right provocateurs and uh, quasi journalists pushing these agendas and covering the news but they're also co-opting the keywords. At the exactly. Time. But do you think that the platform should play a more active role in identifying when those keywords or hashtags are being co-opted and intervene? Or should platforms just leave it to the community? Yeah. It's it, a little bit like whack-a-mole, maybe. Well, the thing about the idea of community is that YouTube is not a community. YouTube is a technological application. Mm-hmm. They want you to think it's a community, but it's mm-hmm. huge and it's ungovernable as such. And so uh, the tools that we've had so far related to content moderation have really uh, underestimated the persistence of media manipulators and disinformers. And what we know through our research is if you're uh, practicing anti-Semitism and you find out that uh, anytime someone puts a chat up in your YouTube video um, and says the word Jews, that that word isn't going to show up. So they just tell people to switch to the word juice, J-U-I-C-E. Right. And Mm -hmm. so that they can keep doing it. And so the technological fixes are never as smart as the human beings themselves. And so we have to understand not just that there are actors, but Mm -hmm. the design of the platforms themselves give those actors different kinds of agency. And when you add scale, everything becomes different. More is different. It's not just one more. And so when I'm thinking about why the problem of misinformation and disinformation has been the centerpiece of the last few elections, it's because of the scale. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to lie to, as a politician, to lie to a media outlet, but that media outlet is going to do corrections. Uh, One would hope. And if they don't, they'll get sued, right? Um, But on the internet, these same laws and rules just don't abide. And, you know, when we looked at the Facebook files from Francis Haugen and had to understand what Facebook was doing in terms of content moderation, it was letting every noteworthy individual, politician, celebrity off the hook for abiding by the platform's own internal rules. Which is ironic because they are the ones with the most influence in the network. Exactly. And so it's more than a numbers game. Um, What it is, is that we have to study and understand the actors, the behavior, the content, and the design. And if we forget to study the design of these platforms, we're going to miss the forest for the trees. Yeah. And so what does what do these designs allow groups to do, not just individuals, but large groups of people with similar motivations? Um, And, you know, weirdly, we have this love hate relationship with politicians. We trust some. We don't trust others. Uh, But when a politician that is sitting in the White House is telling you the election has been stolen and You know, his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, has brought up 60 court cases that have all failed. And then you add in the kind of conspiratorial critical mindset that 
people have about government, and especially in the United States, we don't trust the government. Um, you might trust individual politicians, but overall, it's rage against the machine all the way yeah, down. Yeah, exactly. And that becomes a serious problem because people then feel uh, activated and mobilized, but worse, incited. And so when we look at the backgrounds of the people that broke into the Capitol and that started that riot, some of them are former military. These are people or former police or current police. These are people that are called into being because their purpose in life is to defend the country and the moral codes of the country. And so our politicians need to be held accountable. And for the longest time, uh, you know, we've had a lot of talk. Um, it's only been very recently that former President Trump has been uh, held liable for some of the things that he's done. Uh, many other people in his circle have also been held reliable. But I think as as I think about the solutions to this problem, a lot of it has to do with the hubris of tech companies believing that their uh, technologies are neutral while the world is political. Yeah. And it's actually the opposite. And I could not agree with you more. Joan, and I'm actually going to do a shameless plug. I published a piece in March of uh, this year with Hani Fareed on the need to focus on platform design choices and looking at it from negligent design claims using product liability tort to hold them accountable. Three cheers. Thank you so much for that. Um, and my last question for you, we're really at this moment right now where I think it can either go really bad or we can turn it around, hopefully. And that was my question for you. Are you positive about the future in social media platforms or is it really as bad as we think it is? Um, so I wrote the book Memoirs uh, with Emily Dreyfus and Brian Friedberg as a way to uh, think about what tactics are in play and how Internet technologies and culture have changed our politics. Right. It doesn't look good. No. It doesn't look good in the sense that politicians are less and less held accountable by our other truth-telling institutions, including journalism and academia, because there are profit motives involved. Mm -hmm. There is uh, difficulty proving certain claims. But when it comes to meme wars and the use of humor and satire and transgression in convincing a public to vote for a certain candidate or to just divest from the political uh, world entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're in for a doozy when it comes to the relation, uh, the technological uh, innovations that have happened around AI and deep fakes and, and uh, chat GPT or other large language models. I think that we're going to see a lot more disinformation. I think that elections are going to be more fraught because people will be having conversations with chatbots that they think are people. Right, exactly. And those can be easily manipulated and loaded up with all kinds of lies. And we might never discover that until it's too late. And so I do think that uh, technology without regulation is its own policy. 
In today's episode, you learned more about disinformation, deep fakes, and harmful media campaigns on platforms. While there's been significant work to date to develop effective technical and policy interventions, there's still significant work that remains to be done. Tech Hype was brought to you by the Citrus Policy Lab and the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Want to better differentiate fact from fiction about other emerging technologies? Check out our other Tech Hype episodes at techhype.org. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.